0: You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, this is Jerry Conway, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Ms. Marvel, Episode 1, This Woman, This Warrior. And this is following um, a period of Ms. Marvel from 1977 to 1978. I'm your host, Curtis Findlay. And I am JC, your Ms. Marvel co-host. And this is Ms. Marvel right from the beginning. It's not Carol Danvers from the beginning, but it's Ms. Marvel right from the beginning. Are you excited to talk about this today? I am, I am excited. Uh, You know, 1980s Marvel is my wheelhouse,
2: but uh, I definitely have um, some 70s experience too,
1: so I love me some 70s Marvel. And this is late 70s, it's pretty much, it has the same feel as a lot of 80s, especially early 80s comics. It does, it does.
2: I mean, the book is very Chris Claremont, which is very 80s, uh, which is okay with me.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, What are the issues that we're going to be covering in this episode?
2: So today we will be covering Ms. Marvel number one through number fourteen. Also, Marvel Team Up sixty one and sixty two, and finally, Defenders number fifty seven.
1: Are you a fan of this character, of either this character or as her as Captain Marvel?
2: Uh, I am. So my experience, I knew of her. I discovered her in the eighties, just you know, looking through back issues at at my local comics shop. Uh, I don't know that I owned any particular issues, but I definitely owned some Avengers issues. Where she was in, I bought uh, Avengers Annual number ten off the rack. I was a huge X Men fan in the eighties, so I got to know Carol Danvers sort of in that respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also bought the Avengers series off the rack, the Kurt Busick and George Perez run in in the in the early two thousands, late nine uh, late nineties. Right, and uh, Carol Danvers as Warbird was a big part of that team, so. I'm a fan. I don't. I'm not familiar with her latest stuff. I think I, I'm excited though from this epic collection from the upcoming movie. I'll probably find some of those uh, trade paperbacks to check her out.
1: Now, I never really paid much attention to Carol Danvers at all. Yeah, like you, I was a big X Men fan, so I've read her stuff in Claremont's X Men Run and uh, and seen a, a, an appearance here and there. But when they announced the movie. I definitely said to myself, you know, I want to be familiar with this character before I watch the film, which as of this recording is coming on next week. And so I, I've been reading a lot of Captain Marvel, the most recent stuff on Marvel Unlimited, and it is a lot of fun. There's some great stuff there. And then picking up this epic collection and reading it for this podcast, I feel like I've got a really good sense of, of this character now, of who she is, where she's come from, and uh, and it's a lot of fun. I think she's a she's a really interesting character. There's a lot of neat things that are going on at play with her mind that kind of carry through through her her whole story.
2: I was brand new to this material. I'm excited for the later stuff, but just from seeing the trailer of the movie, which looks really cool, there's aspects of this that I feel like I'm recognizing in the trailer, which yeah. I think is neat. Mm-hmm. And like I said, there's a lot of aspects of this that you know makes me wonder about what I knew in the 80s and such and we'll get around to it
1: so this episode will have some comments from the creators uh, Jerry Conway and Chris Claremont I got the chance to interview both of them about Miss Marvel so we will sprinkle some of those clips throughout these episodes or throughout the episode as we seem fit and then I'll release the full episode in the coming weeks so uh, stay tuned for those interviews they're both really great awesome (laughs) right before we get on to the 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 issues i have uh, some reader comments and also a twitter poll so let's start with the twitter poll i asked the question on on twitter who is your favorite carol danvers alter ego and your options were miss marvel binary warbird or captain marvel these are all personas that she's had over the years what's your pick
2: I would vote Ms. Marvel, but probably because I'm 49 years old and, and that's my wheelhouse.
1: But that's what <laughs> I would vote. Okay. Um, I would probably vote for Warbird, specifically because I think I like that costume the best, even though she wore it as Ms. Marvel, um, but very for a brief time. She, mostly, she mostly wore that costume as Warbird.
2: I can't argue with your reasoning there. Yep. Dave Cockrum is a—I I love. I mean, he does have some kind of funky designs, but overall, I love the whole aesthetic of his design work.
1: Hmm. Oh well, here's what the the voters said: ten percent of the votes went to Binary, fourteen percent went to Warbird, and we had a two way tie for first, thirty eight percent each. Miss Marvel and Captain Marvel. <laughs> so nice. Yeah, old school and new school. That's right. So I think that's a, a good representation of of her fans. Um, and uh, and yeah, people who love the history and also who love the current version of her as well. Moving over to uh, Facebook, we had some comments. I asked people to leave their thoughts on this epic collection. Eric says, "I think it gets better when Chris Claremont takes over. stops making it a Spider-Man spin-off book with overly forced Gloria Steinem references, and makes her more fully developed a more fully developed character." But while I don't think they really knew what they were doing with the character, it just manages to be a ton of fun. And I think that's absolutely true. I agree with it. Yeah. Was it Eric? I agree. Yeah. Conway didn't really have a chance to get anything going because he was only on for two and a half issues. So, but we'll talk about more about that a little bit later. Timothy says, I went in expecting either her to be somewhat helpless, like a 1960s Marvel heroine, or to read like the other exploitation comic fads of the seventies. And I think, Maybe he's thinking of either Kung Fu or Black Splintation. Right, or Power Man. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Pleasantly surprised that it was neither. It has a good mix of villains, supporting cast and subplots. Didn't love seeing J being so misogynistic, but I thought they did well in presenting challenges women were facing in the 70s workplace. The only big misstep was having Carol date her therapist. <laughs> loved seeing Steeplejack in this I always enjoy seeing Scourge's victims in action Um, that's right I had forgotten that Steeplejack was actually killed by Scourge in the 80s yeah that escaped me too he closes with I enjoyed Claremont's writing and can see why he wanted to fix the horrible Avengers 200 storyline in the future looking forward to volume 2 yes the infamous Avengers number 200 Uh, let's save that conversation for episode 2 when we actually will read that issue
2: Cool. I I like what Timothy grabs onto here. I feel like a lot of those early 70s books, like, I mean, I just discovered Master of Kung Fu from the Epic Collection, and I really liked it. Um, But there was aspects, not that I'm an expert in Asian culture, but I felt like it did definitely feel like it was being written by a white American male. (laughs) Aspects of the early Power Man issues, too, I felt like it felt a little stereotypical. And in this, now obviously I'm not a woman growing up in America. I'm a guy, but um, I felt like a lot of care and thought was put into some of these, and especially when Claremont takes over, as to not be. Listen, this is just a sexy girl, and uh, you know she's going to kick some ass. I, I thought it was a decent attempt at being a, a to use modern day term, a woke book hmm. in in the '70s. Uh, feminist movement time. I I, I thought it did a decent job.
1: Yeah, and who was it? Eric was saying that he uh, in the previous comment that there were all these overly forced Gloria Steinem references and such, but there weren't that many, I I found. Sure, they do push it a little bit, but I I wonder if reading it in the 70s, if people would have even, I mean, I'm sure people would have noticed, but maybe it wouldn't have stood out as much since that sort of talk was all over the place at the time. Right,
2: right. And that's true. I mean, I grew up in this time, and I was seven and eight, so I did have comic books. I didn't happen to have any Ms. Marvel comics, but this was right in the time where I was watching Wonder Woman on TV and Charlie's Angels on TV, Um, and there is probably a decent feminist argument that those aren't the best examples, but at the same time, those weren't damsels tied up on the train tracks. Right, yeah. They were they were ass kickers.
1: And I've been uh, I'm in charge of um editing a series of reprints for IDW and the Library of American Comics reprinting for better or for worse the comic strip. And that starts in 1979 and it's it follows the same sort of feeling with a lot of um, feminist comments or Steinem references and that kind of thing. It was just part of the vocabulary of the time. And in fact, yes. the other book that I did for the library of American comics is called Chuck Jones the dream that never was and he did a comic strip in 1978 and he tackled a lot of feminist issues uh, in that comic strip as well um, it only lasted for six months it barely anybody saw it but if he was putting it in there uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that a whole bunch of people were also including it in their own TV shows or you know magazine articles and it just it, it, it was part of pop culture at the time yes yeah, this feels very authentic to the time period. I think so. Uh, maybe a little bit dated today, but yeah, try, trying to read all of these old comics in the context of the era that they were written in is uh, important. 100%. And you know what? Why don't we throw in a comment? Um, Chris Claremont talks about whether or not Miss Marvel needs to be sexier in, in his in his work or not. <laughs> so I'll, I'll try and pull up a little clip from the interview and stick it in here. What was working with Jim Lake?
3: No, he was very nice. He did, he did everything we asked of him. The problem is, as I was saying, he was looking at it from a different perspective. Mm-hmm. So when I, when we would say we needed to look cool and sexy, he drew what was to him cool and sexy. Yeah, it wasn't that it was bad. It was just it, you know, it, it was the perspective of a different, more mature, in terms of age generation right the same thing kind of happened fa- a couple of years later with with issue one I'm sorry issue 20 is that we have a scene where carol goes down to the southwest because um an army an army unit has disappeared and uh, one of the people in the unit was a friend of hers and she and oh new mexico state policeman or texas texas ranger i'm not sure which i can't remember which but it was Dave's visual compliment to uh, the old science fiction movie, Them. Okay. Because uh, he basically drew the same character, which we thought was cool. Right. But they're driving through the desert. And Dave put her, put Carol in uh, jeans and, um, you know, a respectable, uh, I guess, camping shirt. And Stan looked at it and said... She doesn't look sexy. Can't you put her in, like, short
0: shorts?
3: (laughs) And we said, "Uh, she's a a respectable magazine editor. You can't put a respect... You know, you can't put a... You know, how many 30-plus-year-old magazine editors do you know who run around in short shorts? Right. (laughs) You know, um, the devil wears Prada, but the devil doesn't wear short shorts. (laughs) So we compromised, and she basically... Dave had her tie You know, we, the picture w- was her with her shirt tied uh, up under under her chest. Okay, but that was that's that was the continuous challenge. We had to find a way to make her attractive, or Stan said sexy, without diminishing her as as the character that she was and the role that she was. Another comment
1: here from Frank. He says the art is absolutely fantastic. Early Buscemi issues are great. The Mooney and Sinnott pairing is a great idea, and the rest remains fine. Sal B., um, early Great Burn, which paired with fun Claremont stuff, makes for great reading. I'm quite surprised at how much I enjoyed the book, although I wish the book was a bit fatter for 35 bucks. Tell me about it. It was $45 up here in Canada. so. Oh, brother. Yeah. But you know what? It's still You still got... What, what is this? 14, 15, 16, 17 issues. So, the page count is a little thinner because comic books at this time were only what 18 pages or 16 pages or something like or that. 18, 20. Yeah, they were. It had a smaller page count than normal uh, during this time. So, but we still get the same amount of, not the same amount of issues, but pretty close. One last comment we have on Instagram. This is from Cody is Rodeo. It says, Starts slow, but picks up. Enjoy the woman magazine content. Cool to see them attempting to build a feminist lead character in the 70s, even if the comic is created by males. That's going to be the the biggest comment here. And, you know, Jerry himself admits that, you know, he was a a white guy trying to write a woman comic book. But you know what? The bullpen at Marvel was 98% white males. Yeah, yes. The other 2% was like, you know, Joe Duffy. <laughs> and... um I, Yeah. I mean, at this time in the set, the only creator I could have thought of was,
2: was Marie Severin, who happens to do the colors on issue number one. Um But that's it. I know in the, like the later 70s, early right, you get Louise Simonson and Anna yeah. and Senti. But there, yeah, there weren't a lot. But you're right, Mary Jo Duffy at this time too was probably the only other female in the bullpen.
1: And she was writing... It's funny because she was writing power man i think around this time or maybe it was a little cool. earlier so but there's another example like why wasn't a black person writing power man why wasn't joe moved over to right. miss marvel or something i don't know how the politics work here or or how it, everything works behind the scenes but uh jerry was tasked with creating miss marvel and uh he did the best and unfortunately he could.
2: i feel like in the 70s that that really wasn't as much a concern you know i mean right I, today it's great we can say hey there's a wonder woman movie let's let's get a female director for that movie and it and it ended up to be an awesome decision at this time i don't think that was a concern as much
1: no i don't think so at all Yeah. yeah and today captain marvel is being written by uh, kelly sue and it's fantastic that we have a great pool of female writers to give their voice to these characters like who better to write a female character than an actual female
2: yeah, I can't wait to check it out.
1: Yeah, it's really great. Okay, let's move on to the issues. Let's do it. Now, before we another before we get to the issues actually, I'm going to play a clip of Jerry talking about creating Miss
0: Marvel. Stan uh wanted to develop a, a, some new titles for for Marvel at the time. And one of those titles was Peter Parker's Spectacular Spider-Man. And he also suggested that uh, we should do something with the Captain Marvel name or the Marvel name since Captain Marvel was no longer being published. And DC was still, you know, in the process of doing Shazam or was going to do Shazam. Or I forget where we were at that stage. And I I uh, suggested the idea of uh, uh ms marvel uh i don't remember whether doing the fe- a female superhero was stan's idea or my idea to be honest and the ms marvel name again i'm not really sure which of us came up with that but the notion of making a carol danvers and tying it into the captain marvel mythology was my idea and <clears throat> giving her a job that uh uh, J. Jonah Jameson's uh, publishing outfit was mine, even even though obviously she had no real background in journalism to make that make much sense. <laughs> uh, but but I, I was sort of pattering her a little bit after uh, Gloria Steinem right. uh, and the and the whole notion of Ms. Magazine and feminism in the uh, early to mid 1970s, where that was at the time, uh, in my own somewhat clueless white middle-class guy (laughs) Uh, version of it okay issue number
1: one this woman this warrior uh just a quick recap for you miss marvel has to save j jonah jameson from the scorpion who has kidnapped him for revenge because of course if you are a fan of spider-man you know that j jonah jameson is pretty responsible for matt gargan being trapped in the scorpion suit so, Miss Marvel has to save him, and at the same time, Danvers, Carol Danvers, starts a new job at Woman Magazine, which is part of the Daily Bugle Publishing House. Now, do you remember in the 60s, early Spider-Man comics, J. Joman Jameson had, um, he had a magazine called Now Magazine.
2: Yeah, I remember, it. and thanks to my epic collections, I noticed that, and... uh I kind of felt like, huh, that didn't go anywhere.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It did not. Yeah, they quickly changed it over to newspaper. But it's not um, unusual now to see him trying to start up another magazine and also cash in on fads, even if he doesn't believe in the fads. Right. So what do you think, as far as number one issues go, what do you think of this issue?
2: Uh, It was interesting. And, you know, like I said, I, I went into this not knowing anything of these stories. So we meet her right off the bat. Um, with, without any kind of origin, we kind of find out a little bit. And it's interesting to note that as far as fan time, you know, reader time, it had been a couple of years since Carol Danvers was even seen yeah. in the pages of Captain Marvel. And now all of a sudden we've got her with no explanation. Um, but you know what? Most people picking up a comic book pick it up in the middle of a run anyway. So if you're a veteran comic reader, you, you figure out things as you go along.
1: Now, at this point, we don't even know that Carol has powers, because when she had that accident with the Psyche Magnetron in Captain Marvel, she just disappeared. There is no yeah. sense that she got any power. She was just caught in that explosion. And then several issues later, she she reappears in Captain Marvel just for, I think, like two issues or something like that. And she says at that time that she's been in, recovering this whole time, but... Again, there was no mention, no thought of her having any powers. So when we get to this book here, we're not sure if Carol has powers. And especially the way they play this up, Miss Marvel is a completely different person. She's Slates. got a different hairstyle. Like, she's got short hair instead of long hair. We do, We never see any transformation sequences or anything like that. It's a big mystery. Of course, we know that they're the same person, but... Just the way they're trying to present it here—it's a big mystery.
2: From this, I thought uh, I had a couple questions. Right? Obviously, we as readers kind of know—we know Carol Danvers is Ms. Marvel. Yeah. But I know that seven-year-old me, when I'd be reading this, of course, my would think like, where do her clothes go? How does her hair change? Yeah. You know. Yeah. I would have those questions. We don't really get the answers quite yet. We'll see. We'll see if we get it in volume two. But like any good comic reader, I hold on to my suspension of disbelief and, and, I, and I let it go. Absolutely. Tell me, what do you think of her costume?
1: Okay, so this is a definitely a good conversation because it's a ridiculous costume. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely ridiculous. Now, it's only because of the cutouts, the, the midriff and back cutouts. Yeah. I think that's so silly. So looking silly. at
2: this now, and it, it changes later, but looking at the, that, was I immediately thought, like, man, for kind of like a feminist book or a book that they're putting out in the feminist, you know, the cover says, this female fights back. Yep. And then to have it so sexual,
1: you know? But at the same time, they're part of the feminist movement in the 70s was women reclaiming their sexuality and being sexy because it empowers them, not for the sake yeah, of men. Yeah, fair point. And there were a lot of fashion styles that were very revealing at the time. Uh, way more revealing than usual because that was part of the whole, I'm a woman and this is who I am kind of uh, thing. So that may not be um, unusual to have um, the costume cut out like that. I just find it completely impractical for superheroic battle. Yes, even though it's just supposed to be like a leotard. <laughs>
2: there are aspects that I absolutely adore in that it draws heavily from the Captain Marvel uniform, which for yeah. me I think is one of the, the best designed. And I, I I think Claremont credits Jim Starlin with designing it, but I, I feel like I've read Gil Kane actually designed the red and blue costume. Uh, right, for I, think, I think you're right there. Yeah, um, and I for me that's one of the best superhero costumes ever Mm -hmm. Uh, so i enjoy that there's also the aspect of her scarf which is completely ridiculous of course and (laughs) she she pays for it later on in the book over and over again people keep grabbing her scarf (laughs) yes but i find it endearing it's so ridiculous that i I actually kind of like it 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 reminds me of the the very first moon knight costume his his cape attached to his Wrists, yeah. Right. And I always thought like that would always catch on, like a railing
1: of a stairway. But, <laughs>
2: yeah. <laughs> I mean, but they got rid of that fast but she holds onto
1: these scarves for a long time. To this day, um, it's still there. Yeah. Uh, you know what the scarf? To me, what the scarf represents? Uh, I feel like it represents um, a sash or a scarf that women would wear um, at the turn of the century when they were suffragettes when they were trying to get the right to vote. Yeah. Cool. And I think people will remember the scene in Mary Poppins when Mrs. Banks and all of her suffragette f- friends are singing the, the, the song and they all have their yes. sashes on. And that was a big thing even in the 70s still. It was a symbol uh, to wear a scarf or a sash um, with you know your words down, down the side of it or whatever to, to show what you're in support of or to protest in, in this feminist movement. So I wonder, I don't know if it's intentional in that sense. But that's why I see this scarf here. And when she changes into the Dave Cockrum outfit, she turns the scarf into a sash that she wears around her waist. And Captain Marvel to this day still has that sash on.
2: Yeah. I think it's cool.
1: Uh, Yeah. I think it's really cool too. Um, We should probably play a clip of Claremont talking about the costumes since, especially since you mentioned uh, a little bit of that already.
3: Sounds good. If you look at Jim Starlin's design for Captain Marvel, the the core design of that costume, Mm -hmm. it is absolutely brilliant. Yeah, I mean, you look at the and you've got the the blue shoulder, the the top of the of uh, I guess the leotard for what Mm -hmm. it's worth. Right. Yeah. You've got a broad shoulder. You accent the broad shoulder, and then you have this perfect triangle diving straight down to the hips, and it's accented by the the uh, V shape of the trunks. Okay. So you look at it and it's like, whoa, yeah. this guy is cool. <laughs> it doesn't quite work that way when you put it on a female physique because, okay, you've got the broad shoulders, well, they're not quite that broad, and oh yes, look what it immediately nails you with right off the bat, you're looking at her chest. yeah, And yeah. then you dive down in that triangle, except halfway down, two-thirds of the way down, you suddenly do a U-turn and go the other direction because... Of uh, female physiognomy, wide hips, right. And then when you accent it by putting the the uh, trunks on it, what you've got is broad shoulders, broad hips, and it, to my eye, anyway, it wasn't dynamic.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: It it ended up accentuating all the the elements of of that gender. That it's all sort. Of, it's kind of sort of cool. But it's, at least to my eye, it kind of sort of wasn't cool because it just made her more of a sex object than a, than a hero. And I thought that wasn't fair.
1: Right, yeah.
3: And then, from a practical standpoint, the giant windows over over her uh, the, the mid, mid-torso front and back, so you're kind of looking at, at a bikini with... Um, I don't know uh, the equivalent of like suspenders or something. <laughs> yes, yeah, sus- thank you, yeah. suspenders. And it just again, when John Buscema draws it, who cares? Right, because his way of handling the human figure was was both attractive and totally cool. Mm-hmm. The problem is we only had John for the first three issues, right? You know, Jerry's two and my first, and after that, the the ability to present it got very, uh, I guess you could say, fluid. Okay. And the real problem was for, we were dealing with artists who we kept saying, we need her to look sexy because that, we were co- being a commercial enterprise. We wanted, if we're going to have a woman character, we wanted her to look cool. The problem is I can tell... John Byrne or Dave Cockrum or Bill Sienkiewicz. I need the character to look cool and sexy. And we'd be on the same wavelength. But uh, working with artists who came, out, came into comics in the 50s and from a commercial art uh, experience, it ended up, we ended up embarrassingly with a, a lot of shots which were just her flying through the air with splayed legs. And it was like, <laughs> you. Okay. I mean it it was attractive, but only to a point. And it's the kind of shot you wouldn't dare do with with Iron Man or Cap right. or um Thor or Superman or Batman, for that matter. But with her, it it just and it just it we could never find the right rhythm in those early issues.
1: I was really surprised to see. Um, Spider-Man, or I guess Peter Parker and Mary Jane, especially Mary Jane in this book, pre- like they're pretty close friends, her and Carol, it seems kind of out of the blue. Um, oh, no, I guess they meet in this issue, but they become pretty tight in these first few issues. And then you don't see Mary Jane ever again.
2: Yeah, that seemed like it was a Conway idea that he was going to make them friends yep. or, or have Carol be a, a sort of a not an idol. What's the word I'm looking for? Like a like a mentor. Yeah, to marry Jane maybe, uh, just like an older sister type. And uh, yeah, as he went as he went away, then that that subplot went away too. The only other thing I noticed from from this number one mm-hmm. is they give Jerry Conway writing credit with an asterisk, and then they say with more than a little aid and abetment from Carla Conway, and I'm assuming that's his wife. I'm I guess so, kind yeah.
1: of. You know what? That's right. I forgot to ask him that when I talked to him on the phone. I yeah. was going to point that out, but I totally forgot. Uh, yeah, well, volume 2,
2: know. Curtis, Volume 2.
1: <laughs> right. <laughs> well, Jerry was not uh, not involved in that one, so yeah, I probably won't talk to him again. Maybe I'll send him an email, and I'll just see if I can get some answers from him. Yeah, that's what I'll do. And then I'll cool. mention that in Volume 2. Okay, there are a lot of things in this in this issue, just kind of learning about Captain Marvel. Like, she can fly, she has super strength, and stuff like that, but a lot of her abilities come from her costume rather than just innate... Abilities, which I was kind of surprised about.
2: Yes. There, there's aspects that, again, I had a, a million questions where they say her costume helps her fly. Later on, it's because of the costume she can fly. And I guess we'll get into that as, as Claremont sort of takes over the book and shapes it into what he wants out of it, mm-hmm. which I kind of enjoy the direction he took it.
1: If you, if you look at this, pretty much everything except the name Miss Marvel and the name Carol Danvers... Uh, Chris mm-hmm. Claremont changes. He changes every <laughs> single aspect of what Claremont, uh, what Jerry Conway, does in these first few issues. Every single thing. By the end of the run, everything except her, her powers and her name are different. And then he changes that in X Men. So it, yes, yeah. There's, there's, and we'll, I'll point these out as we go along uh and through these issues because yeah, one by one, they slowly all disappear. Well, and we're talking about
2: the X-Men. So after reading this first issue, it, my immediate question was this. Now, obviously, they're you know kind of hinting that powers are in the suit, and they address that later, that she, they eventually become part of her own makeup. Yep. Uh, being the huge X-Men 80s fan, of course, the whole reason that Rogue is so cool is because she essentially stole Ms. Marvel's powers. She's yeah. super strong and vulnerable. She can fly. But the seventh sense... the rogue never inherited a seventh sense
1: that's very true yeah
2: and i don't know again she still has the seventh sense at the end of this volume so i look forward to volume two maybe there's some kind of explanation i don't know i guess we'll have to wait
1: yeah we will i don't know the answer to that question either yeah we'll find out um okay well let's move on to issue number two so in this uh
2: ms marvel has run afoul of the scorpion she's also run afoul of, of an evil professor corman who takes on the uh, costumed role of the Destructor, and we find that both of these bad guys are really agents of AIM, and um, because Ms. Marvel has run afoul of those two, essentially, uh, Ms. Marvel has run afoul of
1: AIM. Now, is it just me, or does Destructor remind you of the old Silver Age villain, uh, the Unicorn?
2: Yes, the, the power definitely, without a doubt, his, his power to... Shoot a ray beam out of his forehead. Yeah, a tachyon beam in, in this instance.
1: I can't imagine the uh, the heat that that must generate in his helmet. <laughs> See, you bring up good good science
2: questions that what every comic book fan should should do and argue about, and then uh, just forget about. <laughs> yes.
1: Yep. There's no questioning it. It's just it happens. It's that's what it is. <laughs> right. Uh,
2: so we still have. In this issue, John Busima art Inc. by Sinnet. I I enjoyed it
1: thoroughly. Both issues,
2: one and two. Mm-hmm. Uh, what are your thoughts on John Busima? It's
1: some of the best stuff that he that he's doing uh, at this time. Uh, it, he's he's really really good. The pairing of the two are excellent.
2: Yeah, in, in growing up in the eighties, John Busima was uh, an okay artist. You know, he wasn't hot. He wasn't Frank Miller. He wasn't John Byrne. Um, but he was definitely Good. He was, in retrospect, he's far more than just good. Um, mm-hmm. As I got older, I grew to appreciate his stuff far more.
1: Well, and in the eighties, he had just, um, he was only doing like breakdowns by that point. He wasn't really right. fully doing anything, I don't think, except maybe Conan still. But yeah, I mean, you look at his work, even with Sinet inking his work in um, in like Fantastic Four during Steve Englehart's run. Mm -hmm. it's not that great but you can see here that he's got the chops like it's excellent i really like it yeah i I think the first issue is better than this one but they're both uh, rock solid
2: they're really good some questions i have in these first two issues back to eric from facebook's point so mike barnett we learn is i kind of wondered you know at the beginning he left a voicemail for carol in, in issue number one about dinner And then it's not until issue number two where she says, Hey, Mike, I need your help. And she, you know, butts in on the therapy session and he he gets rid of his patient. And then, so it made me think were they sort of ding first and then she said, Hey, I need help? Or was he her therapist to begin
1: with? Fair question. I don't know. I guess we don't even know if he is actually, if she is actually his patient. Right, because the first that we ever hear of him, he left a voicemail about dinner. Yeah, that's the first that's we ever right. hear, of which him. implies then, that they're yeah that
2: they're dating already. Right. The next we see now, definitely she becomes a patient of his, and it seemed like to me that this issue number two is the first time she actually sits for him. Uh,
1: yeah, but I wonder if that's just like he's doing her a favor because they're dating. Like it, it, it might right, not be yes. a money exchange kind of relationship here. Right
2: I mean, without a doubt, at some point he she full on becomes his, favorite, his patient, yeah <laughs> and there's some kind of weird dating relationship going on, but we'll talk about that as we go along.
1: I was surprised that he found out her secret identity right away. Usually that's something in this era where you hang on to that information for a long time.
2: yeah, and that was Jerry Conway, like i I know in that Jerry Conway interview he a big thing that he liked was the fact that they were two distinct personalities that, that didn't know of each other. Right. And, and that's interesting. It's, it's not where I would have preferred it to go, and I'm glad it didn't, but it's interesting that you, these two beings exist without knowledge of each other, and then right away, in issue two, you, you've got a guy that knows the secret who happens to be dating one of the personalities, so I don't know right. how he was going plan,
1: <laughs> to plan on carrying that out. But. Right. Well, he keeps it to himself for a while. Right. But yeah, I guess actually that's a good point. He knows the secret identity. So soon because Carol doesn't know the secret identity, so right. somebody has to hear, and uh, we can be we can fit into the role of Michael here, uh, because we the reader know the secret as well. Mm-hmm. Okay, issue number three. This one is called "The Ladies Not for Killing," uh, and this one has uh, Chris Claremont credited as the writer, uh, with Jerry Conway just doing the plot. Now I do want to play a little clip. We're going to overload this episode with clips here a clip of Jerry Conway saying why he left the book.
0: I was actually on my way out the door. Initially, I had come back to Marvel to be the editor-in-chief. And uh, when that job proved to be too much for me to to handle at, at the age that I was, you know, 23. Oh, wow. I, yeah. yeah, I, I decided, uh, you know, I was going to return to DC. But Stan wanted me to stay at Marvel, so we were negotiating a contract uh, for me to uh, stay there, and that went on for about five or six months, uh, and we really couldn't come to the kind of terms that I needed or that uh, Marvel needed. So uh, I was, you know, I only did like a half dozen months' worth of books uh, for Marvel in that in that period. And Captain Marvel, I mean, Ms. Marvel was part of that, and Spectacular Spider-Man was part of that, and I only did a handful of issues.
1: Okay, so in this issue. AIM launches a rocket into orbit and Miss Marvel investigates to find that it contains the Doomsday Man, a giant robot from the sixties, from the pages of what was it, Silver Surfer? Yeah. Silver Surfer uh, number yeah, thirteen. I, I, I take their word for it. Yeah. <laughs> this one was uh unfortunately a little bit of a letdown for me after two excellent issues. It was just kind of a lot of pointless fighting. Like not even fighting yeah. for for a good reason. <laughs> <laughs> but we do see a couple of things. I feel
2: like this issue... Now, the Doomsday Manny apparently is a, is a big... right. If you go toe-to-toe to the Silver Surfer, then you are a heavyweight in the Marvel Universe. Yes. And the fact that she... I mean, she's probably a little outmatched, but she happens to hold her own. And this is what really got me, is she essentially falls out of space... Through the atmosphere and all the way to Earth and survives.
1: And she just stands right back up again.
2: Yeah. Right, right. So that to me seems like she she's she can take a look and keep on ticking.
1: That's true, yeah. Except the destructor takes her out in the previous issue. <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: yes, you know, two tachyon beams she could handle. The third tachyon beam, that's it's just terrible. That's yeah. asking too
1: much. Oh, yeah. Um, this is also the first time she goes to space, which, of course, with Captain Marvel's history, we know that she's space-bound eventually, but she stays grounded on Earth pretty much this entire book. I'm more of
2: an Earth-bound guy.
1: I, yeah. I, I do appreciate some of
2: the cosmic Marvel stuff, but I, I love New York and I love Earth.
1: <laughs> it's where you keep all your stuff. Yes. Uh, so the first big change that, that uh, Claremont does here right away is that uh, Miss Marvel knows who she is. I like it. Yeah, right at the, uh, right at the end here, she realizes Miss Marvel and Carol Danvers are the same person. Uh, they're still separate identities and separate personalities. Like their minds still think independently and they have an internal battle still of who gets to be who at what time. But they now are aware of each other. So yeah, he gets rid of that right off the bat.
2: And I appreciate that he takes his time getting to her just be that carol danvers is marvel yeah you know he takes his time he doesn't just totally scrap what conway did i I appreciate that
1: yeah and i think it's nice to see it's kind of a built-in if he has an idea of where he wants her to go it's a built-in journey and a built-in arc for for the characters so that's that's great
2: uh i've discovered a no prize in this issue okay uh at page 45 where uh, the bottom two panels where Ms. Marble saves two kids from the burning building. If you see, she's yep. she's got the boy in her right hand and the girl in her left, and the very next panel, they switch They switch hands. Oh,
1: <laughs> you're right, yeah. So, seven-year-old me missed out on a no prize there
2: for not having this issue when it came out.
1: Yeah, but, well, the no prize, the, the official rules for the no prize is that you have to ex- explain why that is not an error. Yes, well, my
2: explanation would have been in panel... One, two, three, four, five, six and a half. she switched them. Yeah, that, exactly. My, she
1: just uh, tossed them in. My scientific, yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. <laughs> that's so great. Uh, okay, moving on. Issue number four. Moving on. For, oh, one more thing about issue three. So we meet Salia Petri. Oh, yes. And
2: David Adamson for the first time. And these are uh, NASA buddies of Carol. And we found out that Salia happens to be a very close friend of Carol's. And we see later some, you know, training montage of the two of them, which kind of reminds me a little bit of some of the movie trailer that we see with Carol Danvers and Monica Rambeau.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: so that kind of reminded me. I also had to do some research on Salia Petrie to find out that that was her first appearance. I didn't, you know, it, it kind of made it seem that maybe Salia was a, a minor character in Captain Marvel, but that's not the case. Claremont just puts her in and gives her a bunch of backstory in a, in a, good Claremont way that he's known for.
1: Yeah, I looked that up as well. Um, In fact, I looked up Michael uh, Barnett as well to see if he was a pre-existing character. But yeah, I like the fact that you know these are already established characters in Carol's life. It's not like she just moved to town and she knows nobody and she's making new friends. She has been around for a while and and knows people so uh, we just haven't seen what she's been up to. Right. Okay, so just before we move on, uh, if you go to page 50, you can see that the AIM agents have captured uh, destructor and they've got him under some sort of psycho conditioner to keep him um, yes at, you know he, to keep him sedated. He's in a lot of pain. He's not well at all and he's in New York. That's the thing is that like, one of the panels here says uh, nestled with, within its sub-basements is the New York headquarters of AIM. Advanced Media Mechanics. So, moving on to the next issue. (laughs) Yes. I uh, think I know where you're going. Okay. Well, why don't you give me a recap of this one, and then we'll talk about where I'm going with this.
2: So, now we've left off with um, the Doomsday Man and Carol having crashed to Earth and have a big knockdown battle, and... They are near the Air Force base that... Uh, now, are they in Florida, I think, right? Yes, Florida, yep. Yes. So they've crashed near the Air Force base where Carol had gone to cover the launch of her friend. Her friend is supposed to go into space to a mission to Skylab, and that's really how AIM came into this, because AIM wants to foil that mission because they feel that that will, uh, I don't know, that will do something foul of them, so... right. They try to do this. So as she's taking care of the doomsday man and figures out a way to essentially deactivate him, Destructor pops up, and bam, he, he takes her out with his tech beam. <laughs> and he essentially wants what, uh, you, know, you know, the secret cache of Cree weapons that's buried somewhere near that Air Force base. And yeah, so where
1: did he come from, right? Like, he... that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, he was in New York, weak and right. trapped, and all of a sudden he is in Florida in an underground cave. He's still weak, like he he's having yes. trouble talking and 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 he's like really really stumbling about. Um, how did he get there? <laughs> he just a- kind of and appeared. I think he's free of Ames' mind control. Yes. Yeah. I feel
2: like he he said like he had broken for, so that all happens in exposition,
1: uh, of course. Yep. But it's comics, you know. Yep. What, you, it's what are you going to do?
2: <laughs> and at the time, I'm seven year old seven years old reading this, I would not question that one second.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So the big thing that he sees here is, um, he gets a hold of the psyche magnetron. What is it? Just like a crystal. Yes. The power the source. The power
2: source of the psyche magnetron, and it. It, it explodes and and releases all sorts of radiation uh, at the site at the of their of their battle. Yeah. In fact, what was weird is I think the air force base realized that radiation was happening, and they, of course they send Sally Petri and David Adamson into the the fallout zone to go check it out I guess you know know, they're NASA astronauts about to go on a mission but right now never mind that I need you to go into the the radiation and check it out luckily for her two NASA buddies when they show up the radiation is mysteriously gone
1: right you know if we hadn't already known the location of the soul gem in the Avengers movies I would have Mm -hmm. said that we might see this power psyche magneton power source as a soul gem or soul infinity stone um, yes, in the definitely. Captain Marvel movie, <laughs> it would work uh, right, really well. Right, had it
2: been released two years earlier.
1: Yep. Uh, so this was kind of the, the final issue of just everything that's been building since issue one. We've got the mm-hmm. end of our first story arc. And uh, we have a couple of epilogues at the end here, um, including one where uh, Michael wants to talk with Carol about the whole Captain Marvel thing. But uh, that doesn't actually go anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and th- is this one still, I forgot to check, is this one still Buscema or is it Mooney? Yeah, this, this is the is first Jim issue Mooney. with Jim Mooney.
2: Yeah, and you know, I in my head, I felt like I was not a big Jim Mooney fan. Uh, I, I don't know if I had seen some of his work in Invaders, but this was seemed to me like standard house-style 70s stuff, and I was okay with it. It um, might be Joe
1: Sinnott. Of it's course. absolutely it might Joe be Sinnott. His inks. Yep. Yeah, because he Joe Sinnott such a strong, strong inker that he makes all of the he, he makes all of the books look like Joe Sinnott books. Um, <laughs> so, like his inking and, and his inking on the Busema issues is like it's the same. It makes it keeps the consistency for sure. Um, yes. Later on in this book, even when you see Jim Mooney's artwork with a different inker, it's not as as up to par. Right. Yeah,
2: but I I found it to be okay. I I was okay with the art here.
1: Totally. Issue number five, Bridge of No Return. So this one starts with a premonition. The Splash page is a premonition that um, Captain Marvel, or I keep saying Captain Marvel, but it's Miss Marvel, is getting through (laughs) her seventh sense. And uh, this whole issue is her figuring out, like uncovering the little bits that lead her to the vision you know, she thinks the Vision is going to uh, destroy the world, so she's got to stop the Vision. It's a classic misunderstanding between heroes. They fight for a bit and then realize they're on the same side and team up in order to fight the, the evil that's actually there. That's the way it goes. Yep. This is the first team-up, the first kind of thing, I guess aside from J. Jonah Jameson, it's the first thing that kind of ties her to the larger Marvel Universe.
2: Yes. And I, I almost wondered... If that cover wouldn't have been the cover of this epic collection, in my experience, I feel like they normally try to show you more than one hero on the cover if they can. Um, but they didn't. They chose a different issue to go with. But I, I felt
1: like, you know, yeah. Vision
2: is pretty big in the movies. I felt like that might have been a, a choice they they went
1: with. I like well, the cover as it is, though. They put it on the back cover. Yeah. And I think they didn't pick this one just because Miss Marvel has a terrible pose. <laughs> it's like she You're not her, wrong. Her mid her uh, her waist is twisted 180 degrees. Yes. And you can't see yes. her face very well, so it's it doesn't make a good cover for a Miss Marvel collection. That's you're right. You're right about that. So some thoughts on this issue that
2: I I somewhere they talk about um that the costume electronics give her the strength of 10 men, which at at this point we've seen her to have far greater strength than that. Yeah. But they definitely. Someone says ten men. It might have even been her, but she's way stronger. She's she's up there. I also. I'm kind of getting the idea now that this. And and I don't know if we'll get this later, but I, Ms. Marvel, when she's in the superhero incarnation, kind of thinks of herself as Kree. I think she realizes she's human, but mm-hmm. obviously she knows Kree culture. She knows Kree idioms. If and and I purposely did not read. Like the official handbook entry on, on Ms. Marvel, just to get, take all of this as new, because as, as a new reader, I wouldn't have had that yet. So I'm guessing that in that issue from Captain Marvel, where she gets, she gets saved from the Psyche Magnetron, part of his, his memories get interspersed with hers, you know, because obviously right. she's not just super strong and able to fly and invulnerable, she has actual warrior training.
1: And she makes reference to like I don't recognize that guy from the Cree databases or something like that. Like she says right. that at one point and Right. Yeah. So she obviously does have strange uh, memories.
2: Not to mention, she makes a really good booby trap for the vision in this. That now Carol Danvers is a brilliant woman, but you know, she's coming up with something like Reed Richards style, which I feel like without a knowledge of Cree science she would not have been able to do.
1: Yeah. Uh, moving on to issue number six, this one's called and Grotesque shall slay thee. And Grotesque is an old villain from pages of the X-Men that has been, I guess pulled out of retirement for this issue here. Um, he's a he's the last of a race of underground dwellers that was uh, destroyed due to nuclear war. Um, I guess during World War II. Um, Like underground testing or something. Or something, I'm not sure. But yeah, his whole Mm -hmm. race, he's the only one left, and he's out for revenge, and he's going to do it by destroying a lot of New Jersey in order to steal something called the Calverite Crystal. Yes. And this is the first appearance of this crystal that's going to play heavy into uh, the Miss Marvel uh, storyline moving forward. So, I, I like the interactions between Carol and J. Jonah Jameson, which he, she has in a couple of these issues here. This one in particular, where she's like um, really standing up for herself, um, even though J. Jonah Jameson just does not like the work that she's doing. She He hates it. <laughs> he hates everything yeah. that she is putting into his right. magazine. Well,
2: because she didn't trash Ms. Marvel. You right. Know? She, she probably. Be... Gave like a realistic depiction and a fair and balanced article, and that was he wasn't that's, happy with yeah,
1: that. That's not how he works.
2: I also see that Claremont is now starting to populate the the magazine with his own people. Mm-hmm. So we we get like Frank Giannelli and Lynn Anderson are are people that work under her, and we'll we'll see them pop up every now and then.
1: Yeah, and Frank is is uh, I feel like he's going to be the main love interest and he's and Chris Claremont's going to phase out Michael Barnett oh nice um yeah this one this issue I uh didn't care for this mutton one as much just I think because I didn't really care for the villain grotesque he's just a yeah a big brute um nothing too special about him so yeah didn't really care for for this one at all um but it's interesting I mean there's there's got to be a, a few
2: different cultures that live on, right? There's the Mole Man and his people, right? Oh,
1: yeah. Subterranean, uh, this guy. There's there's a whole untapped world down there, I'm sure. They're all buddies of the Mole Mans, I think, at this point. Yes. <laughs> uh, the other thing in this issue is she
2: mentions how in that battle her costume circuits are destroyed and she can't fly, mm-hmm. and that she... Now, the breathable atmosphere that the costume gave to her before is not there, which is why she's succumbing to the smoke. So that kind of explains how she was in space before.
1: Oh, right, um, yeah. Because they want um, to give a scientific explanation for that thing, but not about the other things. <laughs> <laughs>
2: like, like, who's cutting her hair? I gotta
1: know. <laughs> um, this issue, there's also, we see on page 100, a really big struggle when Miss Marvel is trying to come out and Carol Danvers is really fighting to keep her in. Yeah, that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think it's a great uh a great way to just show the different personalities. And famously, like Rick Jones and Captain Marvel shared space through yes. the through the the wristbands. He would, you know, he would smash them together, and then mm-hmm. Rick Jones would come. He where he was being stored in the negative zone. He'd come and take the spot where Captain Marvel was, and Captain Marvel right. would have to go to the negative zone for a little while. But they could look in on each other, though. Exactly, yeah.
2: I was, in this instance, it's just like unconsciousness or oblivion, I guess. Well, you know, while you're while the other person is taking over,
1: but there's a sense that that person still is conscious because they're fighting to get out. Um, they, like, yeah, Miss Marvel point. knows when when Carol's in danger or when someone's in danger and she needs to come out and save the day. Right. Unless that's a subconscious thing.
2: The seventh sense is really, uh, it's almost like a, a story cheat. You Essentially you can always know where the action is.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, but it also means that she has to play detective. I mean, this is the thing is like Superman works at a, as a at a newspaper so that he knows where the action is. Peter Parker is mm-hmm. also privy to that. A bunch of, of um, people are buddies with the police or hang out with police a lot, so they know when things are in danger. But Miss Marvel has no connections to any of that. Right. Um, I guess even though she works at the Daily Bugle, it's not the same thing. So, in order to find out where the action is, it's a yeah, it is a convenient story device to have her have these premonitions. Yeah.
2: Should we move on to issue seven? Let's do it. Let's do it. Issue seven is called. Nightmare, and uh, essentially the the aftermath of her battle with grotesque uh, Ms. Marvel is found by the West Coast faction of AIM that is led by Modoc, and he is interested in her powers. So he uh, wants to her to tell him all his secrets. So he tries his psycho uh, mag, or first he he actually takes the costume and puts it on an AIM agent. And it doesn't work because it was destroyed so then he he puts the sort of hypnoti- the hypnotizing ray on her and she fights it but, but eventually she she sees Modoc as a as a very sexy version of Modoc <laughs> that's, that's so funny and, <laughs> and, and sexy Modoc overcomes her apparently um, but it turns out maybe she was just faking it because she. She uh, battles AIM agents until MODOK tells her, "Hey, knock it off." And and we find that the the hypno part was uh, was actually working. Um, essentially, what ends up happening is she escapes and she goes through the underground caverns. And as luck would have it, or unluck would have it, this. West Coast faction of AIM happens to share caverns with the New York faction of AIM. <laughs> so, I mean, I would say you can't write this stuff, but Claremont clearly did write this stuff. So when she bursts through the wall to escape, like the West Coast faction chasing her into the New York faction, so then of course like a big civil war breaks out, and uh, she it's too much for her to handle, so she escapes to the Alden Department Store, which is the cover of the New York faction yeah I, I, I actually love this issue for how ridiculous it is totally I, I'm not bashing it in the least I it's completely goofy and it's awesome I love it.
1: Yeah, I really like it too. It's and I love Modok. I just think he's so funny every time he he pops up. He's a great character. <laughs> <laughs> I w- I was listening to your your Epic
2: Collection podcast on one of the Captain America issues, and where where he was like a a helpless baby. You you thought it his helpless baby Modok. That that was an awesome visual.
1: Yeah. So it's so good yeah um, and then he he appears a couple more times in this book and he's awesome I just I, I love that he apparently he's going to be getting his own um, kind of mature themed um, animated series coming up soon so yes and Hulu I think or I something. think that's going to be awesome I'm looking forward to that
2: so there's a couple things like the the sexy modoc thing is awesome right Yeah. He, he's like he becomes the, the mobile organism designed only for kissing I think in that one <laughs> yeah right but the other thing I noticed he said is that he mentions the war of the supervillains, which the editorial notes tell us happened in Iron Man 70 through 81. Mm-hmm. I have no idea what that is, but that sounds cool as hell. Like, yeah. I have to find those issues.
1: Yeah, I forgot to look that up, too. Um, that's, uh, Iron Man 71. So, the, yeah, the epic collections haven't quite reached that point in those volumes. Yeah.
2: Um, I'll be getting that one when yeah, it comes out. Yeah,
1: pretty, pretty soon. Uh, another interesting note here on page 122 carol has or miss marvel i guess has memories but they are not her memories she has memories of her combat training here
2: yes yes i'm assuming that has to be marvel's memories
1: it must be yeah
2: yeah because they she's ticked that they they they're making fun of her skin color
1: yeah and that was a big deal um right. yeah that'll be I wonder if they're going to play around with that in the movie the whole racism yeah. aspect of it so that was that's kind of cool Uh and the other thing I wanted to say here is that Miss Marvel uh finds out that she can fly without the aid of her outfit Yes uh, so there's another thing that Chris Claremont is just changing and doing away with Yeah why not
2: and we find out, I think. I think they explain it that that, psych- that second blast of the psychomagnetron radiation is what gave her the powers from the broken suit, just into her body. I guess.
1: Right. Yeah. Um, this is still Jim Mooney's artwork, and I like th- I like this issue a lot. I think there's um, some great uh, layouts and some great. Uh, a lot of the battles are well choreographed. There's an issue later on that's Jim's that I found very hard to read and uh, we'll point that out later but he did a good job with this one.
2: I liked it. It was this one might be one of my favorites of the of the it's just so goofy. I just with the, with the two factions of AIM battling <laughs> yeah. each other.
1: It's it's so awesome. Um okay, so we're on issue number 8. Mm-hmm. This one's called The Last Sunset and in this one we get another premonition from Carol. She learns that a radar station uh, is going to be under attack and she goes there and she finds grotesque that guy's back and he's going to <laughs> use a laser cannon to destroy the planet yes why this radar station has a laser cannon i'm not sure right somehow he knows that the cabarite crystal has the power to destroy
2: the entire earth and that's he's happy to kill himself as long as he destroys the earth
1: mm-hmm yeah, and we this is the first issue where we meet Tracy Burke, who's going to play an important role later on down the road. Mm-hmm. They meet in a bar.
2: We also find out that Carol happened to be personal friends with Larry, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent, that she calls in a favor to him to, to shake down the Alden department store, which last issue she discovered was an AIM front, and uh, they turn up nothing. So Larry's kind of ticked at Carol.
1: <laughs> yeah, obviously. I would be too. Um, yeah, but how does he have shields, shield contacts? I'm not sure.
2: The, I I think this is a Claremont. This is where he just you know he brings in someone when they've got backstory. Yep. This guy Larry the Shield. They just it's literally she called in a personal favor, you know. Yeah. It's very strange. And got a whole regiment of agents, but luckily AIM was was too sneaky. Like they they went undetected.
1: Which is funny because later it's just like they just didn't go in the elevator that they should have. <laughs> you, you think that they would check all the elevators, but they didn't. Um, yeah, here's another one that it's like, I just don't care about grotesque. So it was like this issue, yeah. while they had some good moments in it, just wasn't as good as i wanted it to be
2: yeah it's kind of weird that you just bring this random x-men villain and in fact i had to go look back in my epic collection volume two to check those stories and yeah so did i they he definitely gets killed at the end of that story line they said you know grotesque has died and of course (laughs) in that same explosion that killed grotesque professor x also died Hmm. and i think it was definitely stanley's intention that 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 was a legit death because he was gone from that title for a good long time before they They retconned that it was uh, the Changeling.
1: So in this one, we also see the fact that the calvary crystal can open uh, a portal. I guess we don't really know at this point that it's a portal. It's just some sort of uh, Nova Bright flare. So we're told, obviously, NASA has interest in calvary because
2: it is the key to traveling faster than light. Yeah. So obviously, that would be awesome for space travel. And if you're fast... Going faster than light, there is potential for time travel as well. So you, when it sucks up enough energy, the cavorite crystal essentially makes like a, a big giant warp explosion, I'm assuming. And, you know, the, the entire base at the end here and grotesque uh, gets sucked into it mm-hmm. and Carol is left. And actually, uh, that'll come into play a little bit later on that somehow Carol is immune mm-hmm. to that warp happening she can be by the warp without getting sucked into it
1: yeah i guess the it, it creates wormholes and so it's not actually traveling faster than light it's just actually opening to a different point in space yeah or something like that so we've got issue number nine i think it's entitled call me
2: death bird and we get uh i think we get an artist change here we get keith pollard yep Uh, with Joe Sinnott and Sam Granger. I'm not familiar with Sam Granger. I assume he's an inker. Yep. Maybe he just did some ink helps on this. And the story, we've got Carol who's flying along, and she gets attacked by Deathbird. It finds out that Deathbird, we find out, is an agent of MODOK's. And for some reason, she owes MODOK a favor, so she is his agent. And she was on another assignment and happened to see Carol flying by and said, I'm going to attack her. Carol essentially escapes her and decides that uh, she's going to save kids from a burning building because she was checking on her own apartment, which was being burglarized. She, Her seventh sense let her know that. So the burglar left the apartment and set it on fire. So uh, Carol escapes Death Bird, decides to save uh, people from the burning building. When that's done, I think she decides to check out the Alden department store on her own. And gets caught by AIM. <laughs> and and in this case, again, as luck would have it, just as she's caught by AIM, the, the West Coast faction <laughs> breaks in again. And it looks like the, the Civil War of AIM underneath the Department Store is going to restart all over again.
1: <laughs> yep. <laughs> Which is great. This is totally yes. great.
2: I like Keith Pollard's art here. I was uh, I knew him from drawing Vigilante in the '80s, and I liked it. Then it's just clean; mm-hmm.
1: it's nothing special, but uh, I, I like it. He likes to use a lot of panels. I found that he—I mean, um, typically you see a lot more panels in this era of comics, anyway. But he will often yeah. do nine or more panels on one page, um, little yes. skinny panels.
2: And while we're talking about the arts, let's talk about the cover uh, done by Dave Cockrum.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: with essentially now you didn't even have to tell me that he designed Deathbird. I just looking at Deathbird, I know that's his design oh yeah you know, it's his, got like
1: some Shi'ar kind of look all over it
2: right the Shi'ar look that the eye makeup he likes the yeah. eye makeup so even though Keith Pollard is the artist of this issue I mean I know that Cockrum is credited with, this, with creating Deathbird. so mm-hmm. it, it's kind of weird that you're at some point, Cockrum said, you know, he wasn't even part of this book at this point, but yet he's designing the the villain of this issue. But, but I'm not he, complaining.
1: Yeah, he was working with um, with Claremont on X-Men, though, so they, yes. they probably talked a lot about this kind of stuff. And and this is just one of the characters that uh, Claremont created for this book that he would pull over to the X-Men books. Um, yes. There's another very famous example coming up in Volume 2 that we can talk about at that point. Cool, um, and also there's a little bit of a costume change for Miss Marvel in this one. The the little um, tummy window is gone now. Yeah, it looks it looks cooler. I think I like it. There's no mention of it. It just happens. It just happens. Yep, right. which is fine. I mean, that's more online in line with like right, you know, a Wonder Woman costume or something like that. And uh,
2: and we know her old costume
1: got broken
2: anyway. So she, this point, it's just this is just clothing that she's making herself.
1: I guess so. Yeah.
2: Though I have to assume
1: she made
2: that intricate mechanical costume herself as well with her pre knowledge.
1: I guess so. Yeah, we don't really know yeah. where she got it. Right. Yeah, I guess that would make sense. Because you know, Marvel was a scientist, right? I.
2: That's you know what I really would love some Marvel Epic collections because I don't have a whole lot of uh, I re- I have a Jim Starlin collection of those issues. But the stuff before that, I'm not really familiar with.
1: Yeah, I've got the first um, Masterworks softcover sitting on my shelf, and I haven't picked that up yet. But, yeah, I would love to see some Captain Marvel epic collections as well. Um, yeah. And then we can find out for sure. I'm sure one of you readers out there or one of you listeners can let us know the answer to, the, to this question as well. Um, I really like this issue because it shows some actual, like, heroes saving the citizens of New York with, mm-hmm. when, when she saves the kids, uh, that's something that we haven't really seen yet. She's just been too caught up with fighting um, monsters or, or you know, the the whole aim underground aim thing. Right. So this is kind of a uh, other than the bank robbery we, robbery we saw in the first issue. This is kind of one of the few domestic things that she she does in this book. You know what I really, really liked that Claremont did was
2: in page 156, that last panel where Ms. Marvel takes the time to be compassionate to the little boy That is, he's scared. He's worried about his parents, and he's he's trying to be brave. He doesn't want to cry. And Ms. Marvel is super compassionate, and remarks later, that must be a skill of Carol's, Hmm. you know.
1: Yeah, and I think it's an interesting thing to do. For a book that's trying to reach out to the feminist crowd, is to to right. show the maternal instincts of this character.
2: I like the the bleed over between the two. Totally clear, like the you know we've seen Carol actually be a badass when she was in a bar fight, uh, maybe an issue or two ago, yeah. or standing up to Jonah. Right. Though I feel like that would have been Carol anyway, because I mean she's she's accomplished before she ever became Cree powered. She was. You know, an Air Force cadet. She was the head of security at Cape Canaveral. Uh, I feel like that she would have stood up to Jonah where she would never get superpowers. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, other random things, I in this issue, she's out on a date with a guy named Paul. So that's not Mike Barnett. So we, we're to assume that the Mike Barnett is not exclusive. Yep. We also find out that she had an old love named Michael Rossi, which I don't know. If he, oh, you know what? I take it back. I've, he was in an issue of X Men. I want to say it was like X Men ninety. He's he's an Air Force guy, and if you take a look at page one fifty eight, mm-hmm. when she, you know, she finds the old uh, picture of the two of them, and she has a memory. If you look at the the bottom panel, the middle panel, yep, that's Dave Cockrum's drawing, right? If you look at the faces on the neck on the this page and the other fa- page, those are Keith Pollard, but. This panel right here is clearly Dave
1: Cockrum. Yeah, you're right. You're right about that for sure. Yeah, huh. that's interesting.
2: Yeah, it's kind of weird. I I wonder if maybe they just redrew it.
1: Yeah, I don't know. That's so strange. That's weird. Right, and it's just the one panel. It's just the one panel. Yeah, it must have been a redraw of some sort. Editorial yeah. must have not not have liked what the other panel looked like. Hmm. Yeah, nice observation. Uh, what else? You also
2: find out that the the burglar that broke into her place is working for a group called the Council. And I feel like that's the last we hear of, in this collection anyway, of the Council.
1: So he, yeah, he wants to steal something. She comes out of there, out of her burning apartment with a box. Um, right, a lockbox. A lockbox with something in it. And we don't know what it is. It's Right. And she hands it over to S.H.I.E.L.D. It's completely out of the blue. It's weird. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's so much of this stuff that Claremont is doing. It's like, Coming into the middle of the story, and this is one of those things.
2: Yeah, if, if he's famous for subplot after subplot. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I like it. I'm not gonna. I'm, I'm gonna an unabashed Claremont apologist. I. Oh yeah. I was such a huge X Men fan in the '80s, and I, I, I like what he did with Pyramid and Iron Fist. I, I like this too, and I'm surprised I had not read this before.
1: Okay, so let's go on to issue number ten. Uh, mm-hmm. Cry Murder, Cry Modok. <laughs> Modok and Deathbird hijack a shuttle with the Kavroic Crystal in order to harness interstellar flight. They want to rule the galaxy. <laughs> yeah, Why not? We have another artist change. This one is Sal Busema with inks from Tom Palmer, and you can definitely see Tom's um, influence yes. on these pages here. I like it. Yeah.
2: I'm not... A, I'm not uh, he definitely adds his style to it but uh especially on either john or Salvasima, it just seems right to me
1: now and at the beginning of this issue carol is trying her hardest to get away without revealing like without having to change into captain marvel and she's suppressing captain marvel Um, i I keep saying captain marvel she's suppressing miss marvel um Mm -hmm. so that she that no one there will find out her secret or anything like that but then modok's like hey that blonde-haired woman is Miss Marvel, <laughs> <laughs> right? he saw now when he she was out of costume, she had her short,
2: fair of faucet hairdo. That's right, but it, now it's longer again. But still, he recognized her. Which and yeah. obvi- do you see, the Buscema had paid no mind to Dave Cockrum's design of Deathbirds. Face so right. Sal Buscema basically different. makes like a helmet for her, yeah, which kind of resembles what she used to look like. But there's a method now that wasn't there before, and I guess won't ever be there again. But
1: right, I don't know how that happens. So basically, the whole department store that they were hiding in is completely destroyed, and now I guess Shield can come back and be like, "Oh, I guess they were hiding under there after <laughs> all." We should have listened to Carol. Yeah. <laughs> meanwhile Carol's getting in big trouble I like how the drama is slowly unfolding behind the scenes she's getting in big trouble at the daily bugle because she just isn't around the editor of the magazine takes off for weird long periods of time and doesn't tell anybody where she's gone listen if you hire someone to be like your your editor-in-chief your brand
2: new magazine yep. and like she's taking sick days all the time she's always fainting
1: I mean I get it the magazines selling well but
2: come on you gotta you gotta start having some
1: conversations yes and those conversations will happen in volume 2 <laughs> um, but they start to happen a little bit here mhm yep also some clues that death bird is not, might not be human yes kind of cool yeah the hints hints of her origin so it's uh, I like how they're they're slowly unraveling a little bit about her too and I wonder if Chris had an idea of what he had in mind there or if he's just like right. eh, I'll just throw in little bits here and there yeah Should I move on to Marvel Team-Up? Yeah, and so, you know, because Marvel Team-Up, because this is, first of all, because the first issue of this one really doesn't have anything to do with Miss Marvel, uh, let's talk about these two issues together. Do you want to give us a a recap of both? Yeah, sure. So,
2: uh, at the beginning of Marvel Team-Up number 61, Spider-Man is in the wreckage of the Baxter building, and he's attacked by whom he thinks is the Fantastic Four. Uh it turns out to be the Super Skull. So he and the Human Torch battle the Super Skull, and the battle takes them out to the uh, the ocean where Carol Danvers is on a cruise. Apparently she, she went on vacation, so she's got plenty of sick time and plenty of vacation time. So she's just returning from a much-needed vacation, they say. The, the battle goes out to her, and essentially we pick that up in the next issue of Marvel Team-Up. Number 62. Yep. Because the Super Scroll has made a detector and he happens to realize that there is a cavorite crystal on the ship that uh, Carol Danvers is on. So imagine that. That Yes, the cavorite crystal happened to be possessed by uh, a, a jeweler and his wife. So he dispatches with them and has the cavorite crystal. Carol recognizes what it is and the danger it poses. And so she battles. Uh, the Super Scroll and Spider-Man in regular Spidey's fashion won't ever quit. He knows he's outclassed by the Super Scroll, but he keeps coming and the the two of them pair up and Carol again comes up with a, again, must be a Cree science knowledge with a booby trap for the scroll, like she did with the vision. Um, Spider-Man helps her. It works. And the trap works perfectly. The, uh, she has the crystal, the scroll inside of the hold. The energy beam from the scroll planet that gives Super Scroll his powers powers the crystal. And it opens a warp porthole, I guess. It takes the scroll and leaves Ms. Marvel because we've learned previously that Ms. Marvel is uh, immune to it. And that's that. She's left with this cavernite crystal and probably owes Spider Man a thanks or two, but really doesn't give it to him.
1: This crystal is too dangerous. <laughs> because any sort of power source is going to cause it to explode. It's like I would be afraid to leave it next to my microwave.
2: <laughs> and this jeweler has had it, like, it was, and it was hidden. See, now, this, is, uh, this is so Claremont. L- uh, how did this jeweler have this crystal? Did he know it was hidden in w- like whatever little thing it was in, right? It, it, right. So this jeweler, I mean, because this jeweler's got a story, uh, if he knew but this jeweler was dispatched up quickly by the scrawl and uh, I right. guess we'll never find out yeah yeah
1: I don't know it, it, uh, it does raise some questions and also like why is this one shaped the way it is she makes a reference to it, uh, it being refined
2: right yes
1: whereas the other one's not and, uh, and also the weird effect that it has on her at the end the crystals seems to be alive and um, what does it say and, and hungry Yes. Don't know exactly what that means, and I'm sure right. those answers will come in Volume 2. I'm not going to hold my breath, but maybe. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> we'll see. The art is gorgeous. I mean, of it's course. John Byrne. Yep. This is John Byrne. Like, I love this era of his work. So this, mm-hmm. is, this is I really like his Super scroll. Um This yeah. is him drawing Fantastic Four before he was on the book. So that's yes. cool to see, too. And he does a great Spider-Man.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I've got no problem with, with John Byrne. I mean, I, I prefer he'd be inked by Terry Austin, but I'm not going to argue with... Who is this? Tom Palmer, maybe? No, not Tom Palmer. Uh,
1: um, Dave Hunt does the second yeah. issue. Uh, oh, I yeah, Dave he did Hunt the first does both as well. of those. Yeah.
2: yeah, no complaints. Yep. I mean, as as far as stories go, they're, they're Marvel team-up stories. I For me, it was always the cool thing that I'm getting two heroes for the price of one. I mean, the stories were not the best because they're... They're kind of forced, but I, I I dig them.
1: This one actually ties into Miss Marvel's larger story, though, um, and it's I mean it's yes. written by Chris Claremont, so it's consistent in its tone and everything like that. Like it fits, it fits nicely it's into just this collection.
2: Weird that she's coming back from a vacation, right? I mean, what, she could have just been on the on the coast at the, you know, she could have been. Doing a story at the Ellis Isle, who knows, right? But she's she's coming back from this vacation. She's talking to like this the the ship's purser. She knows him by name, you know. She right. calls him Daniel. And I, at first, I was like, "Who's this?" We're that's why I just feel like it's it it, it seemed it felt disjointed, and it did definitely yep. come out right at this time. Yeah, you know? it did. But yeah, it but it fits well with regards to the cab, right Crystal. Obviously, it's Claremont. He knows. Her characterization, so it's it doesn't feel like see, it's in the hands of a different writer, they just feel yeah. a little forced. Totally cool. Well, Should we go on to Miss Marvel 11?
1: Sure, let's do that. This one's called Day of the Dark Angel. Um, she's uh, foiling another uh robbery with masked goons at the beginning of this one to kind of uh reference the first issue again. Mm-hmm. So, in this issue, she goes to Cape Canaveral because her friend is uh, blasting off into outer space, but then she gets a vision that the shuttle that Salia Petrie is, is on is going to explode. And so that's definitely not a good thing. At the same time, Miss Marvel tries to free herself from Carol's mind because she has something else that she wants to investigate. She's not interested yes. in investigating the, the shuttle. She wants to check out some sort of cry for help that she sensed over here. And we meet a bunch of characters that come from the pages of uh, Supernatural Thrillers, number 10 to 15. This is a story about the living mummy.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I tried to read these, but they're not on Marvel Unlimited, so I wasn't able to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, we meet up with uh, a bunch of these elemental characters that are from that story. And uh, and uh, and their leader, whose name is um, Hekate... That's how I pronounced it, just basically because of Tikate beer. Oh, yeah. I went with Hicate. <laughs> well, I, it's Hecate because that's uh, the name of a Greek goddess.
2: Oh, awesome.
1: Yeah. So I don't think that there's any other ties to the Greek yes. mythology than that. But, uh, yeah, that's where the name comes from. Yeah, I, I thought this was a good setup issue. We have – who's the artist on this one? Is this Jim? No, Cell. This is Cell still. Yeah, Cell does the next yeah. two issues.
2: I feel like he gets very lazy drawing her hair. If you look at page two twenty three, it just looks like he drew her hair in like a second.
1: He probably did, and Frank yeah. Giacoya is not putting the same sort of effort into drawing her hair that Joe Sinnott did when he was inking Sal in the right. in the other issue, or, or I mean when, when Tom Palmer was inking. Yeah, but yeah, you're right. The everything is a lot more sparse. If you, especially if you go to page two twenty four. Mm-hmm. when she's changing on the rooftop um, backgrounds and stuff. There's just not a whole lot of depth to any of those right. those buildings or anything like that. Just a bunch of yeah. straight lines. I was a little disappointed in the art, but what are you going to do? Anything more you want to say about this one here? I'm going to move on to issue
2: number 12. Okay, yeah, let's do it. So, Ms. Marvel battles Hikate and her elementals, and uh, they're after the the ruby scarab, which is something that these adventurers from supernatural chillers or thrillers uh, had and this is some kind of one of those marvel artifacts that you it's know super robber can can rule the world with. Yeah. Whether it's the, the serpent crown or the infinity gauntlets. So it's it's one of those super powerful things. Um, we find out that Hecate is not actually a bad guy. Uh, she's trying to get this item to keep it out of evil hands. And her three lackeys are actually evil. They want it just because they want to be evil. And, and uh, via the combined efforts of Ms. Marvel and Hecate, they're, they're dispatched of. And um, unfortunately, because of that, Sally Petri perishes in, uh, in the space shuttle crash that uh, Carol wanted to prevent. And Ms. Marvel decided it was more important to prevent the ruby scarab getting in evil hands. So because of that choice, her best friend perishes. And at the end, she's really ticked. She's ticked at Ms. Marvel and ticked at Hecate.
1: I thought that was such a great story element there to yeah. to make, essentially, Carol responsible for her best friend's death. Right uh what a yeah what a great choice to to have that and, and the story potential that that could bring especially since he already has the inner turmoil going on between her and miss marvel now it's now it's gonna be amplified by who knows how much
2: definitely the drama there with 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 regards to the, the two entities had always had common interests up to this point um and now especially that was like completely the opposite interest, you know yeah. Uh, art wise again more Sal Basima, but with Joe Sinnott so it's a little bit more palatable mm-hmm. um, but let's talk about the cover so the cover is Jim Starlin and it's beautiful I think I mean the, the composition is what it is it's just I am a big Jim Starlin fan and
1: yeah it's great I love how he's has it um, sort of a kilter uh, yes to make it a little bit more dynamic yeah is this isn't a scene that we actually see in the comics though right but that's okay no yeah I'm not complaining these characters I don't think we ever see them again. It's um Magnum who's the earth elemental, Hellfire the fire mm-hmm. e- elemental, Hydron of course the water elemental and then Zephyr the girl that's uh, kind of um been pushed out of the group. Uh, she's the wind elemental.
2: Ah, oh, that make okay. I was kind of thinking that she was pals with the with the with the two Indiana Jones type guys. She
1: was pals from Supernatural Chiller. She got pushed out of the group in Supernatural Thrillers. And joined up with those it. two guys, but she is gotcha. an elemental herself.
2: There's tons of like Bronze Age Marvel stuff that you know, like the supernatural thrillers and the It, yeah. the Living Colossus, whatever that un, you know under title that was. That just I don't so know obscure. that it'll,
1: it'll ever be collected, but I, I hope it does. Well, I think these issues, the Living Mummy issues, have been collected a few times. They might be in the Horror Essentials. Yeah, I will have to check it out. the The Mummy makes a little cameo appearance in this issue. Yes, just briefly. Uh Hikate, yes, I guess can can shape shift. Yes. Or and... make
2: illusions maybe. Right. You know? Yeah, I'm not you, exactly, yeah sure. exactly.
1: But she assumes the form of the living mummy to scare off yep. uh one of the guys there. So that's kinda neat. But yeah, let's um the next issue is an interesting one. So I wanna definitely move on to this one here. Yes. Issue number thirteen called Homecoming. While on a harbor cruise in the Hudson River the boat is attacked by two unknown creatures who say they've battled Cree before, which is kind of interesting. Um, yeah. Don't really know what they're after. Um, do you know it's what they're a mystery. After? It's a mystery. It's,
2: it's a mystery, right? They, they, they hit, they, they leave. They don't necessarily seem to be evil, per se,
1: but who knows? But the really interesting part about this is that the issue begins with a, I thought it was a flashback... But Me it's too. actually um, time has passed between the two issues and, and the, the resolution of the battle um, is kind of told in flashbacks. I thought right. that this was going to be like, now that, that Carol's holding that scarab, she's, you know, the, the storytelling trope, it's like uh, we come in and everything looks perfect in this world. She's with her boyfriend yes. and her mom or whatever. And like, but wait, something's wrong. And then it's revealed right. that she's like, you know, tied up. In one of this, some machine that's like controlling your brain or something like that. I don't know. Uh, that's where I thought this was going, but it actually turns out that no, she finished her battle and then she went home to visit her mom. <laughs> that's about yes, it.
2: Yes, it, it's kind of a weird decision.
1: Yeah. But we find out about her home life a little bit and um, especially about her dad because her dad right. does not approve of Woman Magazine or, I guess, <laughs> anything feminist. <laughs> yes. He's got a very old school sense of like the 1950s family unit yes. kind of idea. He probably likes Archie Bunker. Yep, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that, that that's kind of cool. He She introduced Mike as full-time friend. Full-time friend. Mom. Oh, burn. What a burn. <laughs> <laughs> Poor guy. <laughs> yes. Um, but the most surprising thing here is that uh, Hekate actually showed Carol... Uh, that she and Miss Marvel are one and the same person. It's not that they are separate entities living inside, like the same vessel or whatever. It's like they right. actually are the same person because her and Carol form lifts this huge boulder and is able to do yes. it. Yes, and so and there's another thing that Chris Claremont is stripping away from the Conway. Yes,
2: and it kind of makes her very quickly she resolves the anger that she had. Yeah, you know, of her best friend dying.
1: Yeah, a little too fast.
2: But we have to move on to her dad's storyline. So
1: right. <laughs> yeah, her dad is a is a good hero character in this first one. He saves a guy from falling from the um, a steel beam that's uh, up up forty stories up.
2: Yeah, he's kind of a a tough guy and a, a no nonsense guy, and and you know you can see where her mother seems very nurturing and supportive. That Carol's toughness. You can see sort of where that came from.
1: Uh, I have some comments about the artwork in this one. This is Jim Mooney again. He's Mm -hmm. back after being gone for a couple of months. And he does a pretty good job. Joe Sinnott is doing the inks. But there are just a few pages where I felt like this was kind of hard to read. My primary example is 266, Mm -hmm. where uh, we meet these two villains for the first time. I had to read these pages a couple times to figure out exactly what was going on, where people were standing. Like the first one is a silhouette, but I don't know what the silhouette's trying to to show. Right. Or who who's the good guy, who are the bad guys. And and same... they're on a Carol and her date are on a boat,
2: but the action is happening on a different boat actually. Right. And it, and that's kind of... I'm like you. I had to read this a couple times because I, where I'm like, where is she flying to? I thought it's the, the same boat, and it turns out to be a different boat. So it's confusing.
1: Yeah, and just the panel with the that one guy um, that doesn't speak any language. What is this guy's name? Sapper. Oh, Sapper. Yeah, that's right. He's Sapper. Sapper. And I had to look up
2: Goldenblade because I don't think he ever says his name. I don't think I he to said look his name
1: up. either. Goldenblade. Yeah. Okay, so Sapper looks like he's like... Two stories tall. Yes, yes. Um, he and looks I, like a giant. I thought he was huge, and then like in next the next page, you turn the page, and he's actually uh, smaller than Golden Blade or whatever his name is. Yeah. Um. So it's just a few odd choices here. He has that buggy Dave Cockrum look too. Right.
2: That yeah. Insectish look.
1: Now, if you go back a page to page two sixty-five, here's another page that I didn't really like because I feel like Chris Claremont jammed as many word balloons and text boxes in this one page as possible I don't understand why I don't think it needed all of these
2: oh yeah you're right
1: but especially that last yeah. page uh, the last panel um, it's a yes. cool looking panel but all of those text boxes really crowded up it's like there's no room to breathe in any of these panels here Yeah. but that's minor. That's a minor thing again the rest of the issue isn't so bad it's just the, the couple pages there in the middle uh, the thing I noticed is in
2: page 270, where she, she says right at the bottom, where well, here comes Sapper. I've never tried this stunt before, but I used to be a pretty good slugger in the sand lot. And she basically baseballs him, you know, yep. with it. But I thought she said I never did that before, and that looked familiar. And if you look back in page 154, uh, it turns out she did exactly that same move uh, with <laughs> Deathbird where she takes Deathbird's javelin at the top, the, t- the second panel, which says, as a matter of fact, I've just begun to fight. And she gives her a, a home run
1: swing. Huh, that's right. So, uh, She's a left-handed batter in both of these ones. At least that's consistent. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. Right on. That's great.
2: Should we move on to issue 14?
1: Yeah, issue yeah. 14.
2: So this is Fearstocks Stocks 440, and uh, Carol is still in Boston, and this is essentially a, a tale of her and her dad. Her dad is trying to convince the owner of the building that he's uh, working on uh, in construction that it's not safe, and that owner just does not want to hear it. And uh, accidents always seem to be happening at the construction site, so Carol checks in on her dad at the site, uh, saves his life, he doesn't seem to appreciate it. It turns out that, that the owner of the building is a supervillain known as Steeplejack. Steeplejack. Yeah. Right, Steeplejack, who apparently was a different supervillain, and, and this guy worked for him and stole his stuff and became the next version of Steeplejack.
1: Um, and Carol saves the day. Right. Um, nice artwork from Carmine Infantino. You know, very nice, and I have to say,
2: Carmine Infantino could be, along with Al Milgram, my two least favorite artists. Really? Oh, but okay. Yes, yeah. And, and you know, reading the, the Star Wars from the 1970s, those that big stretch of Infantino, it was just tough to get through. But I have to say, and I will give credit where credit is due, this was a really nice issue. I really liked everything about his art. I have to give some credit to Steve Lealoa. Yep. Yeah. But I dug it. I, If this was my first experience with, with Infantino, I'd say he's he's probably better than just normal, better than average. I liked it a lot.
1: So. Yeah, there's some great stuff in here. I love this, the moodiness that he brings to mm-hmm. it because uh, all of the other artists have been so bright and clean. And then this one has just a, a dirty grittiness to it. Uh, and yeah. I think it's, it's neat. It's good for this story because the story takes place a lot at night and deals with some... Uh, heavier subjects just w- how she deals with her father and that kind of stuff so I liked it a lot The so the, the there's one line in her father when
2: she changes back to Carol and he says get your shapely took us home yeah I, I was <laughs> like, Ugh, re- I, like I don't want to know that you're talking about your daughter's took
1: us <laughs> sh- shapely. shapely yeah
2: <laughs> I mean I can see it shapely okay but I don't need to hear it from her dad
1: yeah that's so funny there's the other
2: thing in this that, for me, is the totally WTF moment. And I want to know if it's the same for you in this issue. I'm not sure. You'll it have is to tell where me. Carol is walking through the streets of Boston. Yeah. And she feels like, huh, is someone following me? Oh, yeah, right. And she says, oh, no, it's just a cop. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well. Yeah.
1: <laughs> nope. It's <laughs> actually it Dracula. Dracula. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Surprise. What? What? <laughs> What happened? What?
2: That is the greatest WTF moment of this entire collection.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know what's up with that either.
2: I mean, I imagine that he still had his title at this time, but. Oh, sure. Really? I mean, <laughs> what the. <laughs> Literally, the Dracula vampire bat is following her through the streets and stalking her, and she says, Oh, oh no, it was just the cop. Well, I've got to change into, to, you know, Ms. Marvel and check on my dad, and flies away, and dracula's like ah, I'm, I'm not gonna get that one like
1: what very strange i don't yes it, it doesn't have any bearing to the episode or to the issue or anything I, and i don't know like dracula doesn't show up in any of the other miss marvel issues um and i don't <laughs> think that miss marvel shows up in tomb of dracula I, I don't know that for certain
2: no no i think famously it's only like dr strange
1: and uh yeah and blade maybe silver Surfer. yeah blade yeah it's very strange I don't yeah, I don't know what's up with that either. So, Carol's apartment is burgled, or no, her her office at the at the at the bugle is burgled by I think the same guy that tried to burgle her apartment looking for those same mm-hmm. files. We still don't know exactly what he's looking for.
2: Right. And the really interesting thing is that her her employee Gianelli tries to foil the burglar. He recognizes the burglar the burglar is about to kill him but he said hey it's not worth it you're going to get you know rap with a murder a murder rap and the guy's like fine i'm not going to kill you but uh <laughs> i'm out of here and then he, gianelli tells tracy no i never saw him so gianelli is covering up for this guy ballard mm-hmm. that he yep. recognized and we don't know why we don't so know why. there's more more subplots more mysteries from Claremont.
1: yep i like how they built that up there yeah Ah, oh, boy. Okay. Um, should we move on to the final issue? I think we should do that. Final Let's issue of the book. This is The Defenders, issue number 57. Along came Miss Marvel. This, in this one, Miss Marvel gets another premonition, like she always does. This one is telling her that a friend, Michael Barnett, is in danger and that someone mm-hmm. is going to attack the Defenders. So she has to go and reach out to the Defenders to get their help. Um, We get to deal with AIM and Cavalry Crystals again. So it kind of follows through with the same plot that we had uh, before. And it, this one's written by Chris Claremont as well. So Yeah, guest writer. Yeah. Actually, it's not this one doesn't have any Cavalry Crystals, does it? Or does it? I can't remember.
2: No, I th- I think th- this is just AIM, it's just AIM wanting dirt on Ms. Marvel. How right. How to how to get her.
1: I'm pretty sure that this was, um, my theory is that this one is a, it says it's a Jerry Conway plot. Mm -hmm. I think this was an issue that he wrote before he left the book way, way at the beginning. And it's been in a shelf um, waiting for a chance for it to be a fill in issue for the defenders. And so that's why Claremont is guest. He's just scripting it basically. But if it's a Conway plot, like, he's already at DC at this point. Right. So it's got to have been a story that's been sitting on a shelf. And that's, and I think that's why this starts off with um, a scene that takes place, what it says, months ago. Mm-hmm. Because Valkyrie is in her old outfit. Yes. And Doctor Strange is here. Because at the time in this book, Doctor Strange is missing. Um, so the artwork was probably done by George Tusca ages ago. And then when they wanted to use this one, they had to change some of the artwork, so Dave Cockrum does the rest of the issue.
2: Yes, it, it makes sense. You know, it
1: takes out Doctor Strange or um, puts in Hellcat and whatever else is happening here, Valkyrie's new costume. So I'm guessing that this was a fill-in issue that was written a long time ago. Because this is, this is the middle of, I think, David Anthony Kraft's run on Defenders. Um, so let's talk about Ames' plan
2: to get Ms. Marvel (laughs) yeah, so so that it's not such terrible plan they know Ms. Marvel is Carol Danvers so they know Carol Danvers has a psychiatrist so they kidnap the psychiatrist and they attach him up to a mind reading machine and he's able to give her fears apparently Ms. Marvel's great fear is to be slain by the Hulk which (laughs) I'm assuming is a leftover Captain Marvel memory Maybe, but so. But this is the best part about all of this. So, Aim says, oh, "Okay, that's her biggest fear. So, all we need to do is kidnap the Hulk <laughs> <laughs> and set her, set him on Ms. Marvel. So, you know, probably the 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 greatest, most powerful being on the face of the planet. All Aim needs to do is capture him.
1: That's right. Easy. No problem.
2: <laughs> right." And it actually kind of works.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you know, if they're going to go through that much trouble, they might as well just kidnap Miss Marvel.
2: A hundred percent. Yeah, a hundred percent. The plan to kidnap Miss Marvel has to be ten times easier <laughs> than kidnapping the Hulk.
1: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and they don't do a good job of any of it. Well, that takes us to the end of this book here. I think we made some really good time on this this episode. Cool. We have some uh, some bonus features here. Some. The, the the letters pages from Miss Marvel number one and two, one written by Jerry Conway, which has uh, some great information if you want to know kind of what he was thinking when he was writing, uh, when he was creating this character in the 70s. And then um, one by David Anthony Kraft which is for the most part him just filling space. He mailed it in. <laughs> yeah. David Anthony Craft kind of mailed that one in. You can tell
2: him I said that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> it's so funny, it, and he's got a good sense of humor about it. And right. um, and then, yeah, some, some cool pin-ups and s- character designed by John Romita Sr. Yeah, I didn't know that. I, that's kind of cool. Because when I was talking with um, with both Conway and Busema, they never mentioned that Romita was the one who came up with that. I
2: think Claremont credited John Buscema
1: Yeah, with it. But, yeah, there you go.
2: Well, yep. I mean, 40 years of memory. It's...
1: Right, exactly. Bound to be a few inconsistencies there. Yes uh, Some interior art uh, Some original art From a few pages From a few different artists And a couple of unused covers Which are always kind of neat to see Yeah Including one that uh, Would be the Vision That would have been a better cover For the the cover of the Epic Collection If they had used this pose
2: 100%
1: But I guess this turned out to be The splash page of that issue, right? Yes um, Oh, and it's Marie Severin Yeah Okay That's interesting I kind of want to go back and look at that splash page. Yeah, I'm going to have to do that, too. Yeah,
2: it's it's definitely the same pose, Yeah, but it uh, looks like a different artist.
1: So what are your thoughts on this collection as a whole? Would you recommend it to people?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, like I said, I'm a big Claremont fan, so I love all these weird subplots that are just dropped in your lap without any explanation. And, you know, you hope the payoff comes within five to six months, but you know it's probably going to be two, three years before you get that. And and in a collection, you know, obviously when I get volume two, hopefully that some of these will pay off. I know some won't because the the series gets canceled. But uh, uh, I'm a fan. I I like it. I love Bronze Age stuff. Um, this is totally my wheelhouse. I would recommend it, uh, and I look forward to the movie.
1: Yeah, it's nice that it's only two volumes, so it's not like it's a huge commitment to buying mm-hmm. all of Miss Marvel. And it's, uh, yeah, it's good stuff if you're a fan of Chris Claremont. Uh, he doesn't disappoint here, um, especially with some great artwork from some of the top guys at Marvel at the time as well. Perfect. Well, in a few months, we will be back with Volume 2. We want to try and uh, capitalize on the movie craze as much as we can. So this volume comes out, I believe it comes out in May. So, I think sometime this summer we'll be back with Miss Marvel Volume 2. I'll be here. Perfect. Yep. Thanks, everybody, for joining us today, and we will see you next time.